In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Here we are. It's season two. It's season two. I can't even believe it. I'm excited. I I I have a couple of I have actually have a lot of things to discuss. Yay, okay. So my first item is you know how I had the running bet of like number of dog discoveries, oh, number of yes. beat cop openings. Okay. I was gonna propose that we consider that I got it all right <laughs> and we start with a new set of predictions for season two. <laughs> I'm going to modify that request. Because <laughs> you don't want me to, you don't want me to win. I hear you. You're praying for my downfall. It's you, fine. You didn't have another dog discovery, and that was critical. You did not win. But I'm proposing that we just, like, kind of wipe the slate clean with season two. We can wipe the slate clean with season two, but we can't say that it's because you won. We could just call the other one a wash. Nobody wins. Nobody loses. You did well. You did very well. Okay. All right. That's fine. I'll take that. I Yeah, I just didn't want you to have to worry about tracking multiple guesses. It would be hard, honestly. When I was doing the math and I was like, how many episodes into this season? I was like, oh, I can't be bothered. <laughs> so do you want to hear my guesses for season two? I'd love to. Okay. So season two, I'm going to propose that there are three different instances of, and I'm not going to count the first episode. I'm willing to just give that one away because I already watched it. But I'm guessing that there are going to be three pieces of evidence picked up by a pencil or pen. <laughs> okay. There are going to be no less than four beat cop openings. Okay. There will be two discoveries in the trash in the season. Like, it doesn't, you know, they'll find it in the trash. They'll see it on a random pile of trash like they love to do on the street. There will be two trash discoveries. And then my last one is there will be one dog discovery in all of season two. Okay, I like, okay, this is a lot. I like all of it. I have a question. I want clarification <laughs> on the trash discovery. Okay. Does that also count? Is that just evidence? Or is it like the body? Because they often find the oh. body in the trash. I was envisioning it as discovering evidence in the trash, but I think a body or, like, the evidence of the crime. But I, I'm willing to limit it. If you think that's too generous, I can just do evidence in the trash. I would challenge you to just do evidence, because I feel like the other one will happen in, like, probably four episodes. <laughs> okay, all right. So three pieces of evidence picked up by a pen or pencil, four beat cop openings, two discoveries of evidence in the trash, and one dog discovery. And the dog discovery can either be the crime or evidence, yeah, that, because that one's tricky. Yeah, I agree. I think that one's fair. I like that. Okay. Okay. Item number two. I realized during season one, Miles and I were watching Married at First Sight. We were catching up from the very beginning, mm -hmm. which there are 12 seasons of. And so... It really dominated a lot of our TV viewing, and we are done with it. And so now I'm actually getting back into watching, like, decent things on television. Because Married <laughs> at First Sight is great, is great, but it's terrible. Um, and so now I'm, I have a few, like, things that we've talked about that I finally watched and things that I want to either recommend or talk about with you. Okay, great. 
Have you, the first one is, have you watched The Undoing on HBO with Nicole Kidman? I've heard of it, but I've not seen it, no. You've watched Big Little Lies, though, right? Obsessed. With Reese Witherspoon and... Yes. Okay, so good. It's very, sim- like, it's it's Nicole Kidman at her peak, which is playing a woman who is silently suffering. Like, that is her <laughs> character that she was meant to play. And it's the same character in this show. Little different. Um, and she's great. She's phenomenal in it. It's a really, really good show. It's got her, it's got Hugh Grant, and a few other kind of noteworthy actors whose names I'm, I'm forgetting at the moment. But it's definitely one you should put on your list if it's not on your list. I do think the little trailer I saw for it was very compelling. I laughed because yeah. we just watched last night a, um, you know Seth Meyers? I do. Okay. Yeah. So he does these like little um, clips for YouTube. And he did one the other day. We were just watching it last night where he go- he's talking about, I don't know why he brings up the joke, but he talks about how Nicole Kidman in every, <laughs> in everything she's in is just in something very flowy as like a, <laughs> as like someone who's like has a dangerous husband or something or. <laughs> yes, always. <laughs> and she's just I... like sort of like closed lipped about it and just ready to burst. But she's really doing yeah, oh. well in these roles lately. I, I have to say, I used to think she was hit or miss and she's, she's turned her opinion of me. For she's sure. been hitting it. She, there's a lot of scenes in both Big Little Lies and The Undoing where she's like, you know, standing out on a deck and she's wearing a cardigan with too much fabric that she kind of like, you know, it's a thin fabric and she kind of like touches it against her face as the wind is like whipping her hair and she's reflecting on the choices that have led her to this moment in her life. It's a lot of that and it's, it's pretty great. Okay, great. I'm going to watch that. I always say... I've talked about this before, I think, in reference to the Gilmore Girls, where the main actress, whose, again, name I'm forgetting, but Lauren whoever Graham. plays Lorelai. Lauren Graham, thank you. She, I really, really respect her as an actor because she's able to play the smaller emotions with a really high level of skill. You know, like the, it's not over-the-top anger or over-the-top sadness. It's like the, oh, my heart is breaking and I have to cover that up right now kind of emotions. And Nicole Kidman also has that acting ability, I think, like playing the small emotions really, really well. I agree. And I think that seeing Reese Witherspoon in... Big Little Lies and um, Little Fires Everywhere, I have to say she does really, really well with that, too. Um, And I wouldn't have said that previously about her either, so... No. (laughs) Agreed. Okay, second, I finished the All Be Gone in the Dark documentary, the Michelle McNamara documentary about the Night Stalker. Yeah. Okay, well... Okay, well, I guess I can't talk about the ending of it, though. But I originally... I think the last time we talked about it, I said that it was okay, and I was enjoying it, but it felt like, I, I guess I didn't realize that the documentary was as much about Michelle's process of researching and writing the book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, as it was about the actual crimes. Yeah, you mentioned that on our so other I think podcast. My, it still ends up that way, but it's really, it's a good documentary. I definitely recommend watching it. The one thing that's weird to me, though, is, um, fun, fun fact, in the... 80s, I think it's the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, the Night Stalker attacked and killed a couple of people here in Santa Barbara. And they talk about how 
through the investigation, they believe he was sort of traveling through creeks, like creek beds to get away from, you know, not be on roads and things like that. Yeah. And it's so funny because in the in the Night Stalker documentary, they talk about the San Jose Creek. And that is literally the creek that is next to my house. And several of the attacks and murders were literally on the other side of the creek from me, which is I walk through it, past it every single day. And it's so funny because in the documentary, they're like, uh, the, it's like the the voiceover. It's like in the San Jose Creek at three a.m. Nobody would dare walking through. It's so scary and dangerous. And I'm like, I I literally walk. I, I've walked through that creek at night before. <laughs> I like, walk past <laughs> it all the time. So you're being a little dramatic. You could have talked to a couple of residents who live na- near it, but of course, you know, hey, that's item number two. Okay, item number three. Season three of The Sinner came out, which have you ever watched seasons one and two? With The first one was with Jessica Biel. Okay. So <laughs> I have something to say. <laughs> okay, great. I've not seen it. It's on our list for sure. I didn't have any interest in seeing it for the longest time because the only things uh-huh. I've ever seen Jessica Biel in have been <laughs> Seventh Heaven. Terrible. Oh, we'll uh-huh. Right there. <laughs> and then like... uh was it Starship Troopers or some sort of like sci-fi poorly made um, action movie? She Isn't was that in the one that. Denise Richards is in? I think that's the one she's in, but she was in something like that. So I've never really okay. viewed her as a gifted <laughs> actress, but now I've heard so many incredible things about the center. I've watched the trailer. I've seen her on like interviews and things. And I, I think I am not giving her credit that she's not a teenager anymore. <laughs> So now it's yeah, yeah, like yeah. high on my list, but I had zero interest until like basically listening to my favorite murder and hearing them reference it. Yes. So season three just came out. I finished it. I won't spoil anything, but it stars Matt Bomer and he's phenomenal. Oh, in love it. her. And him. <laughs> love her. Well, you know, <laughs> it works. And Bill Pullman, of course, is is kind of like the main actor who's in all seasons. He's the detective guy. Okay. Season one, I think, was the best, but I've still really enjoyed seasons two and three. Season, I think we talked about this on our other podcast, how I also always thought Jessica Biel was this terrible actress, and she's phenomenal in The Sinner, and I I think I've shared the story that she was such a big fan of BoJack Horseman that she wrote to them, and, was, and they do parodies of celebrities on BoJack Horseman all the time, and she was like, I love your show so much, please put me in as a parody character, and they were like, we'll do one better, come be yourself and like do the voice acting for yourself on the show, and so Jessica Biel voices herself on the show and the like running gag on Bojack Horseman is that she's this horrendous actress but she's actually really really talented and I just love actors who are willing to be in on the joke about themselves in that way and it's it's so good so I like her I like her a lot now I would love to see her in more things I don't think you've told that story yet and I'm really glad you did (laughs) I thought I'd said that before yeah she's like a big big fan of Bojack Horseman and was like please put me on the show I'm into it it's so funny and then lastly, I finally watched Framing Britney. Oh, yay! Okay. And Thoughts? It was good. I feel like it was, unlike a documentary, which I think is often trying to convey sort of one specific point, it kind of talked about a lot of different elements of it. Yeah. But again, really focused on just how terrible. <laughs> like, it's funny, they they talk a lot about how awful the media was to her, but that's almost not the point so much as kind of showing how much her life has been controlled by other people as a way of talking about the conservatorship when I think they could have made something almost entirely just about 
the way that she was treated in the media. Yeah. Man, that was hard to watch. Like, the Star Search. What was that guy's name? Was that Ed McMahon? Uh, yeah. Him saying, like, do you have a boyfriend? What yeah. about me? That's a creepy thing to ask, like, a nine-year-old girl, dude. But you saw this kind of stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. All the and time. And I think we talked about how, like, I hope we're kinder now than we were back then. Because it's it's honestly shocking to go, wow, I cannot believe the way that they have asked her these questions and things like that. Like, the fact that Diane Sawyer made her listen to a, a woman talk about how she wanted to shoot Britney Spears because she was such a bad role model. It's like, why did, why are we doing this to her? I can't believe anyway. watching that back was very hard because I remember when it was happening, everything with her. I remember seeing all the clips when it was happening and I had conveniently chosen to forget, I guess, all of the signs that she was, you know, a human being. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, totally. You know, she was frustrated in almost every interview. You could see it. You could, like, see her frustration. Yeah. I, I mean, feel so bad. It's terrible. Yeah. Okay. Do you have something? I have one duh, recommendation. Okay. Good. Because I just have a random thing to say before we start, but I would love to hear your recommendation. <laughs> okay. Because you have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just watched this last night. I think it's pretty new. It's a, tw- it's, I was on Hulu. It was a 2020 special, so it's not like, you know, anything hard to find if you have cable. But it was yeah. on a case that happened in Idaho, and it's called The Gravedigger's Wife, and it's an ABC 2020 special. And it's insane, and okay. a good portion of it happens in Rexburg, Idaho. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Okay. And so when we were there, I want to say, uh, I don't know, April? We actually drove past the house and stopped because they made like a memorial at the house where this crime happened. Um, And there's like a whole fence where it's been like posted over by like signs and flowers and, you know, in memory of these, the victims of this heinous, heinous crime. And so we actually saw the site where it happened and saw like the impact in the community. And so it was pretty interesting to now see the actual special come out about it. Highly recommend. It's It's called the... The Gravedigger's Wife? Yeah, The Gravedigger's Wife. It's I think it came out just like a few weeks ago, and it's a 2020 special. Really, just watch the very beginning where they say, this case has this, that, this, and that, and you're going to be like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> okay. It has right. everything. Uh, I, <laughs> I just added to my list that documentary or Netflix series that you were telling me about that's all the like firsthand footage of like ring doorbells and self footage of that family where that i think the story is he killed his wife and kids oh american murder the family next door there's also a documentary that's really popular right now called murder among the mormons oh have you watched it or have you I, it's on my list now. it's on my list now too i was gonna watch it last night but davy fell asleep early and i felt like i couldn't watch that without him <laughs> that makes sense okay my last thing before we get into the episode is this is a quiz this is a pop quiz describe okay Describe the Monopoly man. Let's see. His white hair under his top hat. He's got a mustache, um, a little suit. I think he's got... I can't remember if he has a cane or not. He might have a cane. I might be thinking the planner's peanut, but he definitely has a suit Mm -hmm. and a little top hat, and I believe a mustache. Anything else? No. He has white hair, I think. He's got little black dot eyes, probably. Does, Um, Does he have a monocle? No. That's the peanut guy. 
Okay, it's so funny. I was listening to an episode of Sinisterhood called The Mandela Effect, where uh, there are it. people who <laughs> who talk about, um, this is mainly about Nelson Mandela, but uh, a lot of people talk about how people like vehemently remember the Monopoly man having a monocle. And then, you know, of course he doesn't. And people are probably confusing it with the planter's peanut guy. But there's this whole weird online phenomena of people swearing up, down, left and right that they have distinct memories of Nelson Mandela dying and, and totally. watching his funeral on, on television. And, and it didn't happen. <laughs> I, I don't experience that with the Monopoly man. But as soon as you asked me if he had a, a monocle, I knew you were going to talk about the Mandela effect <laughs> because I yeah. love those videos. I experienced it with the Berenstein Bears one. Okay, they talked about that on the episode. It is in my childhood memory, it is Stein, S T E I N, not an A. Oh, yeah, yeah, I exactly. Oh, and there's, so always, there's the other one with Kazam, right? Or with Sinbad in the movie. Yes, yeah. Shazam and Kazam. Yeah, yep. that one, yep. that one yep. always gets me too. Well, should we, now that we're <laughs> half an hour in, should we start talking about <laughs> the episode? <laughs> yeah, why not? Are you ready? Um, it's you. All right. I know, I'm ready. And I think I, I gave us a little bit of a spoiler in the season finale of the first episode, or first season, because I said that Grievy is not on the show anymore. And so this episode kind of explains what happens. So season two, episode one is called Confession. And it opens With in the Lohan station. <laughs> Screaming in a room about her father. I was actually thinking, isn't it Usher? These are my oh, confessions. Yeah. See, that's the difference between our minds. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, does Lindsay Lohan have a song called Confession? Confessions of a Broken Heart. Uh, oh. Daughter to Father. I just remember... <laughs> Daughter to Father. Yeah. Oh, is that the same song? Yeah, I think it's called Confessions of a Broken Heart. Oh, Confessions. P- parentheses. Parentheses. Daughter, <laughs> Daughter to Father. P- parenthetical titles make me laugh really hard, especially on a song like that. Amen. Okay. Like, it's like, I just think it's funny that Lindsay Lohan thought she wrote a song that's complicated enough that it needed a, like, additional title, you know? <laughs> right, like when someone reads, it's... like, poetry inspired by someone else, and they're like, after Gandhi. But it's... <laughs> after (laughs) Lindsay Lohan. Yes. Oh, Lindsay. Okay, so it opens in the police station and Robinette is basically chastising Logan for giving too much detail about a case involving corruption in a construction business that there's like supplies being stolen and it's part of this big racket and there's this trial going on where they have Logan and Grievy set to testify about the things that they've observed in this case. You know, the trial's in progress from what we learned from this this scene, and essentially they say that Grievy will be back tomorrow to give up some names on the stand. So then we get a scene where Logan is calling Grievy's house to talk to Grievy, and his wife is answering the phone, and this is the first time we've ever met his wife or seen his house. It's this very dramatic scene. It's like dark and stormy. It's raining hard. There's like lightning flashing outside, and... His wife on the phone, who I can't remember if we ever got her name, but I think it's something mm. like Carla or something like that. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember. She says that 
she says that Max is outside rummaging around in the trunk and, you know, he's always taking so long and she kind of is on the very, very long corded phone (laughs) and says, oh, now he's out there uh, gabbing with somebody. Then she kind of like sees this like second figure force Grievy to kneel down and she's like, oh my God, no. And then he gets shot twice in the back and once in the face. And Logan, what all he hears is Marie say, oh my God, no, and drop the phone and Logan is screaming, oh, her name's Marie. Oh, that's right. Marie, Marie. And then it kind of fades to black and we get the title sequence. So I uh, just take a quick flight to France. I toured the Louvre and I came back and we're back to the episode. Oh, you must have had a few minutes to spare. I did. I mean, I toured the, I looped the Louvre a couple of times just because I was like, uh, probably not time yet. And then, you know, got my flight back and I was like, okay, perfect. Perfect timing. I got, I actually had time to pop a little popcorn before I came back. <laughs> That's the fancy, fancy version of loop de loo. Loop de loo. A loop de loo. All right. So this, after the title sequence, we get a scene that opens with bagpipes, which is their absolute favorite instrument on this show. <sighs> I feel like we've seen bagpipes at least three times. Maybe there should be a, a, a season-long bet on will we get bagpipes. Maybe they'll go to accordion. Do you think we'll get bagpipes another time? Maybe a keytar. A keytar. <laughs> if we get a keytar, listen, if we get a keytar at any point in the 20-season Law & Order series, I'm going to be really excited. I mean, it's the 90s. Yeah. So... It's Grievy's funeral. He's dead. We never see him. I'm actually not sure if they even had Grievy play himself because the sort of shadowy figure we see getting shot, we don't ever see details. So who knows if he was even he was playing not. himself. He was not. I looked it up. Oh. <laughs> well, great. Thank you. You're welcome. Also, they are, so they're, it, Logan and the other pallbearers are carrying the casket. And this casket is as empty as the coffee cups on Gilmore Girls because they're lifting it like they're playing light as a feather, stiff as a board. <laughs> like you just see them like slightly shift their hand and the whole thing kind of like tips around and tilts. There is nothing inside of that casket. I'm actually not, I'm pretty sure it's not even a casket because it's all wrapped up in a flag. Yeah. It's probably just but like an I, empty box. You know, put some put something in there just to give it a little bit of weight so that it looks believable. Spray a little sweat on their brow, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have them kind of like strain as they lift it up. It's not like Grievy was a small man either. No. So we're at the wake. This whole episode is really about Logan being out of sorts and dealing with the murder of his partner, He goes and talks to Craig and Stone and Robinette, who are at the wake as well, and they talk about how this is obviously connected to the trial that they were in process with, because why else would he have been randomly killed the night before he was supposed to give grand jury testimony? So they're like, okay, we've got to start tracking down leads on anybody who knows anything about this case and who could have leaked information that could have gotten Grievy killed, who had the witness list, who got that out there for people. This episode is also kind of peppered in with scenes where Logan is obviously forced to go and talk to a police psychiatrist who is uh, a very one-dimensional character who just has like three or four lines that she says to Logan. He is clearly not interested in having any part of like quote-unquote closure or healing. He doesn't clearly doesn't believe in psychotherapy. He is like, can I go now? I'm fine. And she asks him if he's ever heard of the seven stages of grief. And he's like, no. 
Um, and th- come on. When he said that, I was like, who hasn't heard of that? Because w- when did that become popularly known? Because I feel like who doesn't know about the seven stages of grief? Exactly. That's like 80s. Come on. Have you ever? And right? she says it as though she's proposing some sort of like deep dive case study that he would have never heard of. Have you heard of ba- Hit Me Baby One More Time? Like it was just like, <laughs> have you heard of Milk? <laughs> no what's that by the way the seven stages of grief is a grief model developed by kubler and ross and um i think they were both on friends and i (laughs) can't find a date on it but there's things published about their study from like the 90s and there's a Brene brown episode about it oh yeah and it's from okay it's from a 1969 book called on death and dying so you know, I don't know. Okay. Also, it's Kubler-Ross, not Kubler and Ross. Sorry about that. So he says no, but she's like, the first stage is denial. And he's like, I'm fine. And then walks out the door. <laughs> so that's kind of the tension that we get the whole episode is everybody is like, I'm fine. <laughs> I don't want to talk I'm about fine. it. Also, Logan's like falling apartness is being conveyed through a wide variety of hair choices. Because there are a number of scenes where he is very obviously, like, supposed to be struggling and, you know, a mess. And that is portrayed predominantly through his hair. Like, there's no gel. It's messy. It's in his face. Uh, you know, that's... They were like, well, they're really... he's not doing that great of a job <laughs> at acting. So we gotta, gotta bring the hair in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bring in really, hair and makeup. They're really trying gotta... to make a lot of visual cues for the audience. Yes. <laughs> so... Cragen talks to Logan about a detective named Phil Soretta from uh, the, I think, 39th precinct, they say. And he's the one who is investigating Max's shooting, Max Grevy. And basically, they're like, are you okay with him coming over and essentially joining as your partner and investigating this case? And Cragen doesn't really want Logan involved in investigating Max's shooting because he feels like Logan is not doing well, might make bad decisions. Might obviously i mean we've seen season one spoiler alert does make bad decisions (laughs) so you know he's he's hesitant but again logan says i'm fine and then he asks how craigan is and craigan says i'm fine so this is the i'm fine episode (laughs) we cut to the da's office and they're talking about who could have leaked the information about gravy's testimony and they start kind of uh ruling out some names the first person they go and talk to is a guy named manigan magadan some kind of name like that, I forget. And he's like, nope, I didn't say anything to anybody. And so they leave. We cut to the police station Wild West bathroom that we mentioned in season one. Mm-hmm. And Soretta says that he really needs Logan involved in this case. I need you to run point on it. So they go to interview a construction worker about these stolen pipes, stolen construction supplies. And he says that he supplied the materials in this, like, the original case that they had been investigating that Grievy was going to testify in. But he doesn't know anything about the, you know, mysterious fall that the building inspector had falling off the roof of the construction he's like i didn't have anything to do with that but clearly the guy was pushed off to cover something up so he says go and talk to a man named morgan stern morgan stern <laughs> like rhoda oh my god i forgot that was her last name i, I kept looking at that going god that reminds me of something and i can't think of what it is <laughs> did you ever watch rhoda like the show rhoda yes i loved rhoda 
I liked Rhoda too. I thought it was as good as Mary Tyler Moore. So Stern gives up the name of a man named Daniel Magadan, who is the son of the grand jury foreman. And we get Magadan Sr. in an interrogation room, and they say, like, why did you tell your son about the grand jury? What did you tell him? This leak of information led to the murder of a police officer. And he said that his son just had a friend who he wanted to know, like, quote, what the grand jury was getting. Like, what information were they getting? And he said to his father that Grievy was apparently going to give up some names. So Logan shows up at his house later, Magadan Sr., and tells him that his son is covering up for someone, or he's covering up for somebody, and it's wrong, and he needs to know who, because his partner was killed because of it. Father Magadan, (laughs) he's not a priest, but Magadan Sr., he said he needed info about the grand jury for a friend, but maybe there was no friend. Maybe he needed the information for himself. So Logan kind of deduces from this that the guy's son killed uh, Grievy and tells him, you know, I need to know where your son is. And the guy says, okay, I'll tell you where my son is, but not, but you have to swear you won't hurt him. And Logan's like, I swear, of course. (laughs) Sounds very legit. I mean, yeah. So Logan uh, does the right thing, of course, as he always does. And instead of getting other people involved, he just tracks the guy solo at night and kind of roughhouses him and then pushes him up against a wall, pulls out his gun and sticks it to the side of his head to question him. Mm. So when I said he does the right thing, I was, of course, being sarcastic. This was right. the wrong wrong choice. <laughs> So he asks Daniel Magadan if he killed the building inspector and Grievy to shut him up. And the guy's like, no, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I'm just, you know, I'm just innocent. I've never done anything. Logan forces the guy to like kneel down, sticks the gun in the back of his head. And it's like, this is how you killed my partner. And the guy's like, I didn't kill anybody. Logan's like, I didn't believe you. I'm only going to ask you one more time, Danny boy. Why am I doing a Batman voice for Logan? Because Logan's <laughs> doing a Batman voice. He's really laying it on. Like, he's like, he I got to get raspy. I got to get a little gravelly here. Yeah, my hair is in my face. I got to have a voice to match. (laughs) (laughs) So with his with Logan's gun in the back of his head, the guy confesses that he did kill Grievy. And so they bring him into the station for questioning. And Soretta, the other detective who I forgot to look this up, but I'm pretty sure he's sort of the stand in for Grievy during this season. He's kind of the 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 replacement. Yeah. Ongoing. Is that right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. He asks. Matt Madigan to walk him through the events of the evening and he says you know he thought he could scare Grievy off maybe threaten his wife to get him to change his mind about testifying and he doesn't really know why he killed him he says he just kind of lost it but he by the way there are this is another one where the actor is either making acting choices or the director gave weird directions to him to sort of behave strangely in a way that is never explained. You know, like where they're like the bailiff is acting drunk, but oh, <laughs> that's yeah. like never part of the storyline. They they kind of had him acting in a way that indicated some kind of like maybe mental health issues going on, but they never developed that as part of the storyline. So it was just kind of you were left sort of going like this character is just behaving oddly so i don't know it was strange and there were a lot of strange like little details to the plot regarding the the whole crime itself that were just so like not fleshed out no they didn't yes. really make this was sense. another one where 
they, you know, I think Law and Order does is at its best when there are as few characters involved in a case as possible. Like the case that was based on the Menendez brothers was obviously really easy because it was two sons and the mother and father, right? Yeah. This one, there's lots of like, who knew who, who said what. It's kind of like the police corruption one we got last season where we're like, what is, what? why are we doing this? Yeah, it's like they really wanted to get to the idea of... Logan having this moment in the alleyway with that guy and the yes. crime that got us there was it like didn't matter inconsequential yeah. yes exactly they didn't set up a good backstory to lead us to this moment but when does law and order give us a good backstory <laughs> so okay so the guy also gives up the location of the weapon he says that it's hidden in a toolbox in a trailer that belongs to the construction company Seretta through his interview with this suspect, Daniel Madigan, finds out that Logan had essentially coerced this testimony with a gun to the guy's head, which is a problem for the district attorney, because you can't have coerced testimonies. That's not how things are supposed to work. Really? (laughs) But Logan tries to kind of like cover this up and is like, oh, well, he's a cop killer. You can't really believe him. Do you really think I would have killed him? And Soretta says, like, I don't know you well enough to know. I liked that moment because I was like, good, good for you. Although, you know, hey, he kind of defend. There's a lot of this that kind of touches on the elements from the final episode of last season, the blue wall, where it was like, like, there's a scene where they have Cragen basically be like, well, maybe he saw a gun. Maybe it was dark. He was concerned for his safety. Like, there's all of these justifications they're jumping through to say like this wasn't a coerced testimony logan was just doing his job and to like keep himself safe he had to pull the gun on this guy which we all which having seen it we all know is not correct yeah you know they they present it as though they're trying to think the best of him and oh you know that's that's given the benefit of the doubt but you can tell the whole time they're saying all the things they're like yeah we know who we know who logan yeah is. we know he didn't do it yeah So we cut to the construction site, and sure enough, they find the gun in the toolbox, and they pick it up using their favorite piece of detective equipment, a pen, which they stick in the barrel of the gun to pick it up. Again, I am not a a forensic expert. I am not a crime scene investigator, but that just, again, doesn't seem like the right way to handle evidence to me. Yeah, like when they're analyzing the data, they're like, and this mark on the inside of the barrel of the gun where the... uh... The evidence has been tampered the with. Pen? That's the uh, <laughs> standard eraser mark. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. So they they get the gun, and then we get to a court scene with Magadan's lawyer, who is from Legal Aid, and he is wearing the world's grossest ponytail, <laughs> and basically says to uh, Robinette, like, you know, hey, I'm this guy's legal aid attorney. I don't really have any skin in this game. But once his, it was kind of unclear, but basically he implied that there were going to be some hotshot lawyers coming in to defend this guy. And so he was like, listen, you're in trouble with this case because the testimony was obtained under gunpoint. Like your case is going to fall apart the minute it goes to trial. And so Robinette is like, okay, I guess we have to try to get some other evidence and kind of figure out what happened here because this whole 
Logan coerced the testimony thing is ruining our case, and we didn't know about that until the legal aid guy just told us because the police didn't share that information with us. Mm. And I love that the legal aid guy like knows all this stuff because generally legal aid people are generally shown as like they don't know anything. They're sort of like right. they're just to, yes. to fill a spot. Yes, which is not – so there's lots of uh, – evidence documentation that legal aid uh, attorneys are super super overburdened with caseloads and so they it, there's like a reputation that legal aid lawyers like aren't as good when in actuality they're just so overloaded they can't do the they can't always do the caliber of job that they might want to yeah. if that makes sense yeah. so then we get to a scene in the police station with all the cops and the district attorneys and they're trying to get the story out of Logan and whether he coerced this testimony and Stone breaks him through some of his trademark close talking he gets really really close to Logan's face um, and basically is like this is fruit of the poison tree if the first confession is coerced any subsequent testimony is coerced you're you've kind of ruined our case here we get a moment of Logan in therapy. It does not do anything important for the story. And then we go to a scene where Stone essentially is telling Logan, you know, I as district attorney, I have to prosecute this case fairly. And I have information that you coerce this testimony. You are being charged with a misdemeanor. You need to talk to Cragen because you could risk you're uh, losing your badge, you could risk losing your pension. This was a big fuck up. But through a couple of scenes that I'm not going to describe at length, we essentially find out that the saving grace in the case is that the gun that they is the gun. Because prior to Logan getting this coerced testimony, they had had warrants to search the uh, construction grounds, and they would have found the gun during those searches. So they're saying that's still our admissible evidence. His prints are on it. It's the gun that killed Grievy. Like, that's how we're going to win this case, even though the co uh, confession was coerced. So during the trial, there's a moment where the guy who had given up Magadan basically mentions that Logan held a gun to Magadan's head. And so there's this kind of explosive moment in the courtroom where the prosecution calls for a mistrial, or sorry, the defense calls for a mistrial. But the judge overrules the case, and ultimately Daniel Madigan is found guilty of killing uh, Detective Grevy, and he is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And then we end the episode with Logan in therapy, who's basically like, I have to find a way to forgive myself. And then the the therapist is like, acceptance, that's the last stage. And that's the end of the first episode of season two of Law & Order, mm. Confession. These are my confessions. <laughs> Great job. I was sad about Grievy. Thank you. You know, I'm also sad about, like, I didn't love his character, but I had become familiar with the actor. And so now I'm having to adjust to somebody else. Do we know, did he want to leave the show or did he get written off do we know what happened there i think he got signed onto something else i don't think he was like fired or anything like that i think it was like just a one-year contract and then he just did something else um okay so apparently according to the internet he was disappointed when he realized it was an ensemble show and not a show where he was the star so he quit after the first season Ooh. drama wow all right I'm excited. What is the first crime of season two? Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Do I, will I recognize it? I don't think so. I didn't recognize it. Okay, so 
Season 2, Episode 1, was inspired by the case of the state of Arizona versus Oreste Fulminante. Okay. Yes. And my sources were, uh, of course, Wikipedia and the Law and Order Wiki. Okay. So the I read the digital case file of the Arizona versus Fulminante um, case in 1991. Case. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's an article or submission to the Kentucky Law Journal by Kenneth Kenkel in 1992 and an essay by Timos Petas in 2020. There were three articles, um, one in the Mesa Tribune from 1992 by David Robb and Dan Moldia, a New York Times article from 91 by Lena Greenhouse, and an LA Times uncredited uncredited article from 1991. And I found a little video to watch um, from C-SPAN. It was a broadcast from March 28th, 1991 about the case. Okay. All right. So this case, much like the episode, it's not really about the crime. It's more about okay. what happens because of the crime. So, Ooh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, like, while the basis of it is about a murder case, it's real, like, their inspiration and the similarities for the episode are drawn from the, the subsequent trial and the decisions that are made based on it. Okay. Okay, so here we go. On September 14th of 1982, the Mesa, Arizona Police Department received an early morning call to report a missing child. 11-year-old Janine Michelle Hunt was being looked after by her stepfather, Oreste Fulminante, while her mother was in the hospital. And he's the one who reports her missing. He's the one who makes this call. And sorry, he's the father. He's the stepfather. Stepfather. Yes, there's no mention of the father, really. There's not a lot of mention about the mother either. Um, Just that she, it was confirmed she was in the hospital. And he calls them, they come over, and the police department comes over and they question him and... When authorities question him, they find a lot of inconsistencies in his story. Um, he repeats it a few times, and it just doesn't sound quite right. So he becomes mm-hmm. a person of interest pretty quickly. Okay. Two days later, Janine's body is found in the desert east of Mesa. And because of the level of decomposition, they couldn't conclude if she had been sexually assaulted or not. But there are there's a ligature around her neck still, and she'd been shot twice in the head from a large caliber weapon. And this was two days after her disappearance was reported? Yes, two days after her disappearance was reported, she is found dead. And it does not say when the estimated time of death was. It doesn't say how long she had been missing for. It's very, very hard to find information on this. Yeah, it doesn't even give an estimated day of when the crime occurred. It just says the month and then, like, when he called. Yeah, because it's so interesting that they would say, you know, in theory, if it was only two days in between when she was killed and when she was found, you would think that decomposition wouldn't be a huge issue to determine if there was any kind of sexual assault. Yeah, I wonder if because it's summertime, she's out in the desert in Arizona, I wonder if that has anything yeah, to maybe. do with it in June. I think it's I think I mean, a September. So who knows? But Probably still hot in the desert, yeah. I thought it was kind of strange too. But like I said, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I couldn't find hardly any information about anything else involving the existence of this young girl. You know, I always try in, in cases where there's a, a victim who's, who's no longer with us, I try to speak a little bit for them and try to, you know, get a better picture of them than maybe was painted at the time. But yes, I couldn't find any articles there wasn't anything. at all, even about the mm. original trial. Like I, I really, really Gosh. searched. So it's really most more about what happens afterwards. So, you know, okay. I guess I would just say, I hope that the, I, 
yeah, I hope that the reason I'm unable to find any information is, you know, that everyone's respecting the privacy of her legacy and her surviving loved ones. Yes. You know, I don't know if that's true or not. I hope that's the reason, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but in any event, you know, she's definitely not forgotten, even though she's much forgotten in this case, so. Yeah. You know, no, so after, you know, he makes this report, they think he's suspicious, no charges are filed um, right away, and then from what I can deduce in... Somewhere in 1983-1984 time period, unclear, um, Fulminante mm-hmm. is arrested in New Jersey. Remember, he's in he's from Arizona, Mesa, Arizona. But he yeah. moves to New Jersey, and he's arrested there for an unrelated weapons charge. Okay. And he's imprisoned in Ray Brook Federal Correction Facility in New York. I believe it was because he had a weapon on him that was purchased from a felon. It was something like that. So he makes the acquaintance of Anthony Saravola, who is in for some organized crime-related charges. What mm-hmm. um, Fulminante doesn't know, though, is that his new friend is also a paid informant for the FBI. And oh, okay. twists abound. Yeah. Through their little friendship, they make um, the topic of Fulminante being suspected of a murder in Arizona of an 11-year-old girl comes up. And he mentions this mainly because he's saying that Inmates at the correctional correctional facility have caught wind of this rumor, even though he's there on a weapons charge, and he really doesn't want that getting out. Um, I guess most of us who watch anything true crimey, we've all heard, you know, that when someone's incarcerated under suspicion of doing something to a child, they have a target on their back, and they're treated poorly by essentially everyone there. That's kind of like a, a known thing, right? Yeah, actually, it's so funny you bring that up because one of the things that I've I saw in the news just in the last like five days was that Roger Kibbe, who uh, is better known as the I five Strangler, was found strangled in his prison cell like two days ago. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm so I've checked that up. <laughs> so all, that's to, just to say uh, that you know when when folks are known to be rapists and uh people who do awful things to women and children uh they are very often given what is kind of colloquially referred to as uh jailhouse justice exactly that's exactly what he's worried is going to happen which i am not condoning to be clear no no not at all if you're listening please don't do that yeah exactly please please refrain so he is very afraid of this and he's already experienced some minor brutality from other inmates and he's he's scared and he's confiding in his friend who's been in there for longer and saravola offers him protection and says that he can essentially himself or through connections he can give him protection while he's in the prison but in exchange he needs to give him some sort of collateral and what he proposes is a full account of what happened from the you know what he mentioned earlier about the 11 year old yeah you know this is the information he doesn't want to get out so this is you know good collateral he assumes and he says if you give me this i can promise you protection in here so he obliges he gives him a detailed account of what he'd done um he and by the way of this confession i there's not i couldn't find it i wanted to find like a transcript there's some details about the confession that come out like what did he do yeah like there's there's details about what he said in the confession that i was able to find but not the actual meat the whole confession okay okay so i see in the confession he states that he uh it's it's stated by multiple sources that he uses foul language when speaking of janine he shows very little remorse for what he says he's done, says he's done, 
And he says that the reason she was killed because she was in the way of his relationship with her mom. So she had to go. His, uh... Yeah. Yeah. So his original statement to... I, <laughs> what is... on People's decisions sometimes. Like, another person is standing in the way of our love, so I'm going to kill that person. Yeah. Like, and what's going to make the person I love either, love me more than if I kill their child? Right. And, and presumably what that also says is this person is really close to the person I love. And yet I have no qualms about killing that person. That is 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 eerie to me. That's beyond. That's the new dating game show that's going to come out. <laughs> the new reality show from Co- <laughs> brought you, to you by COVID. <laughs> okay, did you ever watch the uh, SNL uh, Irish dating? Oh yes. Skit? <laughs> God, <laughs> fucking hilarious. Okay. God, I love Cecily Strong. Okay, so okay, his. His new confession differs wildly from his original statements, which differed from each other over time, little by little. Um, And his initial statement was... I mean, you start to lose track of the story when you're lying. lying, Right. So his initial statement was that he he suspects that she was killed by drug dealers in the desert. Not sure how he would know that. That's what he told police at the beginning? Yeah. Like, when they find the body, that's his... Okay. That's, like, basically what the defense is. It's like, well, here's an alternative... You know, she was killed by drug dealers in the desert. It gives no explanation as to whether he was involved with drugs, whether the mother was involved with drugs, why this was like a a credible alternative presented in court. But it doesn't. <laughs> it's kind of like the uh, the episodes from <laughs> from last season where the first thing they have to rule out is a cult killing. Oh yeah. Um, or the when the Menendez brothers are like, maybe it was the mob. Like. Okay, what a weird thing to... to... Maybe it was Jewish space lasers. It's one of those things, you know, it's like that case where the guy murdered his wife and kids and then said that a satanic cult broke into his house and was chanting, kill the pigs Mm -hmm. or whatever, and stabbed us and none of it was true. It's like, it's, you know, people create these really random ideas to confuse the investigation which are always like what yeah an 11 year old girl was killed by drug dealers okay (laughs) right in the middle of the desert yeah what was she doing there do you know she had any yeah question mark question mark question mark so uh yeah so later this same yeah later the same year in 1984 fulminante is released from the new york prison he's served his time for the the gun charge and he is driven home by saravola who had been previously released. His charge was basically up first, or maybe they let him out early because he's an informant. In any case, he's out. And Sarah Bola comes to pick up Fulminante with his then-girlfriend, who would eventually be his wife. Can I, can I interject something really quickly? Yeah. I am I really like all of these people's names, and they all sound like spells from Harry Potter. Sarah Bola. <laughs> <laughs> Fulminante fully sounds like a, like a spell, 100%. Maybe like a charm. A curse. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Um, His wife's name is not so Harry Pottery. It's Donna. (laughs) I actually love that name, though. (laughs) I feel like you can't be named Donna without... You can't be named Donna without some really big hair. I was was gonna say, I feel like if your name is Donna, you need curly hair. You need curly hair. You need volume. With a lot of volume. Yeah. I knew I worked with Adana, and she had a a lot of big curly hair. Yeah, I feel like several people... I don't have any Donnas in the family, but I've had 
several family members with friends named Donna, and they all had big, curly hair. And I loved every minute of it. <laughs> so Donna, uh, Anthony Saravola, and Fulminante are in the car ride back from just, you know, casual car ride back from the <laughs> correction facility. And in right. this car ride, he confesses again, this time of his own volition, to both of them, giving more details than he did even the first time for the whole car ride home. Okay. On September... F- I mean, that's like, you gotta pass the way some way on a road trip. You know, it's... If not any, you know, <laughs> share some stories. Oh, well, here's the time that I murdered my stepdaughter in the desert. It's like, guys, I'm just... Just lighthearted, easy breezy car ride conversation, you know? I'm tired of Punch Buggy. Can we do something else? I spy, <laughs> confess about a murder of my 11-year-old stepdaughter, Some something. Anything. God. Yeah. Let's go to Jack in the Box. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, but... I, w- I got Jack in the Box with Miles the other day, mm-hmm. and I'm still really upset because I ordered curly fries, and I got regular fries, and we didn't realize until we had driven away. Oh, one time recently, we ordered... And also... Okay. <laughs> we went to In-N-Out today, and I got... A Dr. Pepper, and they gave me Diet Coke. <gasps> not the same. Not, not acceptable. Even close. Oh my god, not even close. Like multiple levels of unacceptable. Oh my god. I We recently ordered Jack in the Box, and we, we just wanted like a, a shake, essentially. A shake and fries each. Mm-hmm. Just like we just wanted something. We ordered it, just two shakes and two fries. And the guy drops it off while we're outside um, with the dogs. So we saw him like dropping it off, and we're like, is that ours? I don't, that doesn't look like our order. He's walking by, and he sees us walking uh-huh. towards the door, so he knows it's us, and he goes, oh, hey, guys, your order's by your door. Is that you guys? And we're like, yeah. And he's like, they were out of shakes, so I got you each a Coke. Uh, That's uh, the whole reason we ordered. We just wanted a shake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even really drink Coke. Oh, I was so upset. Uh, On September 4th of 1984, so later that same year, Fulminante is indicted for first-degree murder, and... There's not a lot of details about the case, but he, both confessions are allowed, and he's indicted for first-degree murder, and in 1985, he is sentenced to death. This, of course, though, is not the end of the story. So, immediately following this decision, Fulminante's team attempts to have both confessions thrown out. They say that the first one was coerced, and they claim that by offering him protection from harm in prison, which he would certainly face otherwise— he had been coerced, mm-hmm. and that the second uh, confession, in turn, was, quote, fruit from the poisonous tree, just like from the episode. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So the judge Wait, does Wait, why was agree. the first confession fruit from the poisonous tree? No, the second confession to Donna in the car, that would be fruit from the poisonous oh. tree because the first confession was coerced. Gotcha. Okay, okay, okay. You know, and I since see. they matched so similarly both confessions and the person who received the first confession was in the car as well, they're saying, you know, that shouldn't be allowed either. The judge does agree that the first confession was coerced, but he argues that it's admissible because it would have been protected as, quote unquote, harmless error, which I think they mentioned in the episode too. Hmm. So okay. this harmless error statute works in his judgment because the second confession was not coerced. And since it matched so closely to the first, they ruled that it would have likely secured the conviction even if the first confession was not said in court. So that makes it, quote-unquote, harmless error, which is essentially what they're trying mm-hmm. to do in the episode with, you know, they would have found the gun anyway, so it's considered harmless error. Okay. You know what I mean? That's kind of what the episode is trying to say. That's the similarity here. You know, the question 
confession yeah. being coerced is sort of non-essential because it wouldn't have mattered. Right, exactly. Yeah. After the after he's sentenced to life, I'm sorry, after he's sentenced to death, his attorneys appeal the case anyway. They appeal the conviction with the Arizona Supreme Court. And in 1991, they agree to look at it based on the fact that the confession, even from their first judge, was admittedly coerced. So they, they reviewed the case. Okay. And on October 10th, 1991, in a 5-4 to four decision, the conviction is overturned. And a second trial is promised without the admission of the first confession being allowed. Okay. So they say that this should not have happened. The first confession was coerced for sure. And they couldn't, in a five to four decision, which is a little controversial, they said that the first confession should never have been allowed in the first place. The reason this is such a big deal is because now this trial sets precedent that is really controversial and I think still stands today. Which we'll get into momentarily, oh, okay. but we'll we'll finish out this guy's journey, shall we? <laughs> so I don't have to remember his name anymore. <laughs> Let's go on his journey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so while his first confession is inadmissible, they argue, regardless of that, the second one is totally legit. It's not, you know, fruit from the tainted tree and all that nonsense. And I searched and I scoured hmm. and I found only one single, like four sentences in one single article. <laughs> That provides any update mm-hmm. on this whatsoever, because every article says okay. he's, you know, the conviction's overturned and he's given a new trial. All these articles are from like yeah. 1991, and and that's it, no, basically. Yeah. So I found one article, okay. thank goodness, from an, from the Mesa from the uh, Mesa Tribune in Arizona, which I guess is a local publication, which is why I found it, <laughs> and it says mm-hmm. that. Uh, the update is that a new trial date was set for 1994, and in this trial, uh, Anthony Saravola did not testify, and Donna, the girlfriend's now wife, failed to uh, quote. I'll just read the quote because it's yeah. Donna quote failed to appear at three pre-trial conferences, forcing the trial judge to forbid the prosecution from using her as a witness. End quote. So this new hmm. trial goes on. Not only does it not have the first confession. It doesn't have uh, Saravoli there at all to corroborate anything that happened in prison, and the mm-hmm. like main witness that has that the second confession was told to. So both both people the confession was told to the second time do not appear in case, in court, which totally you know weakens the case. <laughs> yeah, like what what evidence do you have at that point? Yeah, and in the first case, a lot is put on the fact that. Without the confessions, there's not any firm, firm evidence tying him to the crime. But right, regardless of all of this, he's still found guilty again and sentenced once again to death. But wait. Wow. Okay. <laughs> there's more. In Interesting. 1999, the Arizona Supreme Court ruled that he had to be given a third trial. Because in the second <sighs> okay. trial in 1994, they said that there was inadmissible testimony that was allowed that shouldn't have been where the victim's fears that her stepdad was planning to murder her were revealed but it's you know hearsay i would say Hmm. that's important but hey they i uh, mean like i guess yeah i guess it depends on you know if somebody says like sarah told me that she was afraid he was going to stab me stab her with a knife he was always like waving a knife around threatening to stab her is different from like 
he was kind of a, a menacing jerk. You know, like, I guess it depends on the level yeah. of detail, maybe, in the, whether it's hearsay or not. Yeah, I and again, they don't give any information. So, uh, I mean, I guess that's kind of it. That was the last piece of information on the case I could find. I don't know if a third trial okay. was ever given. I don't know if it's still pending. I don't even know if he's in jail. I really could not find anything else about this guy. So, is as he still of alive? 1999, <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. I even looked up that. And when I, I looked up, is, yeah. you know, Oreste Fulm- Fulminante alive or dead or in jail? And it just kept coming up with the same, like, 12 links. <laughs> Interesting. So, okay. yeah, every article that I was able to find is mostly about the decision made in this case and in the appeal, rather, which, you know, now sometimes allows coerced confessions during trial. So mm-hmm. a standard was set in 1967 in a case of Chapman versus the state of California, where if any of the following three things were exposed during a trial or immediately following an immediate reversal of the case was in order. And those three things were uh, a judge's bias towards the case, complete absence of counsel, or coerced confessions. Now, because of this case, that has been amended, and some, quote, some coerced confessions are admissible as harmless error on a case-by-case basis. So Harmless error. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now what was previously an immediate reversal is now considered sometimes harmless error. In a 1991 um, New York Times article, it says, and this is, I think, really the, the fear of this. It says, quote, Jeffrey Weiner, president-elect of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, said the decision was a, quote, troublesome one that at a time of more awareness of police brutality gives subtle encouragement to law enforcement to break the rules, end quote. Um, yeah. And that yeah. was in 1991. And look where we are uh, now. <laughs> where we are today. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very controversial. And when I read a lot about it, there were a ton of names of the of the Supreme Court uh judges or whatever the p- correct terminology is who voted on this this five to four decision. And it's widely believed yeah. that if the one judge who would usually be there had been on staff that day or on the docket or whatever it would have for sure never passed but because someone else was like kind of switched in it looks that way yeah there's also a lot of information on the internet about this saravati guy that i've been saying was the informant um yes there's a lot of controversy about the validity of his statements because he Ends up going. He, he gets out of jail. He's promised some something like a reduced sentence, I think, right. to, for this testimony and all that. But it's only like I think a year or two before he's back in jail on something unrelated, and I think he's still in jail today. Mm-hmm. And previously to this, they've used him as an informant for other things. And in one of those cases, it was found that he produced fake recordings between him and someone else on a case, but they still use him as an informant. I mean, that's the thing that's tricky about any time the law uses something against somebody to get them to get information. Like the whole, you know, we'll drop these charges if you pretend to be this guy's cellmate and, you know, get a confession out of him, blah, 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 is that person then has incentive to 
find evidence that confirms a pre-existing supposition. You know, like you're looking, it's essentially creating confirmation bias that we want to prove this specific conclusion that we believe is correct. And so we are going to create circumstances in which people will... People, have, people will benefit by creating that evidence. Does that make sense, yeah, the way I just said 100%. that? Yeah, 100%. And it's it's a big thing that is is looked at in this case. A lot of the articles I was finding or scholarly, you know, essays and things are all about the treatment of informants, the... <laughs> you hear Harrison? <laughs> I just heard Harrison, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the treatment of informants, the way they are uh, compensated promises that are made to them, the pressure that's on them, um, all the different cases in which an informant essentially coerces a confession and it's allowed. It's it's hard because you don't want to label the people that are imprisoned as un, unreliable sources, especially if they're the only people right. that are around, you know, people who are there for a reason and who right. we could potentially lean on. At the same time, the way our system is, you're creating situations for people where it's like, am I going to save myself or a stranger? Right. So like, of course, there's the, like, even to the average person who has all the best morals in the world, imagine you're in prison for something you did or didn't do. And you have a family on the outside that's growing up without you. And this opportunity comes along. Who would not feel a moment of like, okay, well, listen, this guy is confessing he killed a 11 year old girl um i don't really care whether he's lying to me or not i mean i know i didn't do what i did exactly. and i want to get out i don't know right. this dude from you right. know it's it's i don't know at the you know at the end of the day the only real connection to the episode and this was the you know all of this stuff the coercion the theme of coercion yeah. Yeah. and then you know 11 year old janine michelle hunt who is the whole reason any of this even happened was her horrendous murder she would be 39 years old today. And mm. I mean, I'm 35. I just think like this life was stopped short for uh, no yeah. reason. And I hope I hope that those that knew her and loved her and remember her able to, you know, were able to make sense of the horrendous tragedy that was her murder. I I hate that this tragedy caused this sort of, you know, legislation to be changed because I don't I don't yeah. necessarily think it's great. And again, I, this is all I could find on it. And I wanted to say anyone out there who, if you've heard of this case, if you have some sort of connection somehow to this case and you think uh, I left a lot out or if the details seem kind of spotty, please, please, please write in, contact us on all the social media and stuff that we'll give you. I would love to know more about this. I would love to know if I've missed anything. Yeah. And that's that's everything I have. I have one quote from the um, sure. C-SPAN video I watched in 1991. It's an interview with uh, Professor Wasserstrom, and he's, I forget what he studies, but anyhow, they interview him for about 20 minutes, and he says that he believes that it it is dangerous, and that was how the media was covering it, like, is this decision dangerous at the time? What does this mean for the future? And he says, yes, he can understand why it would be dangerous, but he thinks that the media is exaggerating the importance of the decision, because practically in, in law... He says, quote, I really don't think as a practical matter, there will be any cases where the appellate court will find that there's a harmless error, end quote. And throughout the whole thing, he's he's on the side of everyone who thinks it's dangerous. He's not um, opposing that, but he thinks that right. overall, 
this decision. The won't odds are low that this will exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's not a lot of cases where he thinks it's going to come up where it will, you know, influence anything. And I did do a little research trying to find out, you know, the significance of this decision, how many cases it was used on. And it's so hard to find that kind of information. And anything I did find was sure. so, like, dense and wordy. So I really don't, I don't know. <laughs> Legally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's a... Uh, I think it's it. so interesting, though, that part of the way that the legal system works is not part of the way, but a huge portion of the way that the legal system works is based on case precedent. And, you know, in, in each of these situations where these sorts of decisions are being made, it then becomes the evidence and the precedent for for future cases. And so that's kind of the, you, you know, like cases aren't just deciding this case. They then become the material from which lawyers will draw in order to, you know, prosecute or defend, right? And so any sort of like misjudgment in how to determine guilt or innocence or whether a court, a case can proceed or things like that is is heavily influential of the ones that will come after it. And so even if we all sort of like as people feel fine with Oreste Fulminante being found guilty of killing his 11-year-old stepdaughter, the way that his case came to that place is is a little, you know, it, there could be ways that that could be applied to future cases that are really troubling, you know? Exactly, because in this case, when we hear coercion generally the general public has a very limited view of what coerced confession could entail you know we have this could mean sure image yeah. of like someone in a room all by them like what we've seen unfortunately with you know kids with people of color with women yeah with anyone who has yeah. like just, a mental just watch the documentary or oh, sorry watch the netflix us. series when they see us exactly. and you'll just see endless amounts of coerced testimony exactly so we normally have this vision of like a really like shady cop covering a camera twisting an arm or you know a good cop bad cop you're sitting in this room for hours it, but it <laughs> holding could, the light bulb above your face yeah that like swinging light bulb <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's things like this too where there's imminent danger that you know is coming and someone is promising you to help you from this hell that you're living in. and let's remember he is we don't know if he's guilty or not for sure it i don't see any other True. um suspects besides the mysterious drug dealers um but he's in prison and remember when we watched when we when they see us the experience of prison for some people is not great and you know <laughs> if he's actually innocent and people think he's a someone who murdered an 11 year old girl murdered a child yeah he's yeah, gonna be being that's... treated like he his life is in danger so for sure. You know, yeah. there is there is that to be considered in coercion. That is not just this one radical look. But at the same time, that's why it's so dangerous to have this legislation changed. Because in cases where the coerced confession is like that, <laughs> that's the date. Yeah. You know, it's so like yep. insane to think that that's the thing that could happen. It's interesting to hear somebody with legal expertise basically say like yes this sets a kind of troubling precedent perhaps but the odds of this happening are pretty low mm -hmm. i i mean i guess i don't know if that person is basing that off of evidence but uh yeah. i suppose that's mildly reassuring to somebody who doesn't really know that necessarily 
the law yeah. or, you know, the ins and outs of it law. Felt, so. It felt like a, a reliable source, but it also felt like it's 1991, and I don't know <laughs> if that's the case. Where we are now. Yeah, so anyhow, yeah. there was also kind of an interesting article yeah. I didn't include because it was wording I didn't really understand and, and a whole rabbit hole I didn't want to get through, like go down. But the the mm-hmm. informant was also linked to a possible cover up with the Bush administration um, previously, where he had said he witnessed George W. Bush um, during his run for presidency, his initial run for presidency, like accepting some sort of buyout from somebody, and it never like panned out. So there's a lot of like credibility issues with the informant himself, a lot of them. And Interesting. It's okay. It's hmm. Argued that he should probably not have even been an informant at that point because all of these other things had happened before he was even chosen to like you know get more information yeah. out of this guy. And he wasn't even in that prison to be an informant for that case. It was totally coincidental, you know. Hmm. Anyhow, but Interesting. yeah, that's that's what this was about. Wow, good job. Thank you. It was an interesting one. I I will say that yeah. my favorite part of doing this was reading that case file. Um, when I uh-huh. saw it, I was like, oh, God, this is so confusing. But the more I read through the parts that were understandable, it was interesting to see because it was about the it was about the um, Supreme Court decision. And mm-hmm. it was interesting to see how the processes of of that they had each Supreme Court judge who had a say on this, had a say on this decision, like all nine of them. It had their whole like reasoning written out for each person. So I got to read what each judge has said and why they decided yes or no. It was really interesting to see that, like, I don't know, when I think about decisions getting passed and I'm reading these four statements that are, like, against this and how, like, valid they are, I'm like, wow, it's so crazy that even with these four incredible arguments against this, it just takes one person to just have, you know, To tip the scale. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well... How would you rate the episode? Um, I would say for the way it handled the topic, it's kind of hard to say because I guess the topic is uh, police misconduct, maybe. I don't think that's what yeah, they think the conduct is. confessions. <laughs> yeah, th- I think yeah. they think it's coerced confessions mostly, but it's a little bit of police misconduct too. Yeah. I yeah. would say they handled the idea of mental health poorly because it was just <laughs> the typical... I'm too much. I have to go to therapy. I'm fine, but I'm not. By the end of the episode, yeah, thing. Yeah. Um. So that was poor, and the police misconduct they danced around. So I'll give it a C. I'm gonna give it a C for okay. that. And then for what about for like watchability? I actually kind of enjoyed this episode. I found it like entertaining. One of the more entertaining ones. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So I would give it. I'd give it a B. Just a solid B. I think that's fair. What about you? Yeah. I think this is, again, one of those episodes that was more about the characters than about the type of crime or whatever. And so I thought it was, like, more watchable to an extent. So I would give it a B as well for watchability. And, yeah, they didn't do great with mental health. They didn't do great with coerced testimony. Like, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, Logan was still, like, footloose, fancy-free, running around, doing his police stuff when everybody on the episode knows that he made a grave error and that was just kind of fine with everybody. So I'm going to give it a D plus Mm, for how it dealt with the issue. Yeah. They gave him way too many passes for grieving, grieving, grieving. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the episode title. I was just going to say that. Well, 
If you would like to help us grow, the best thing that you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you are using to listen to our episodes. Yes, and please tell a friend who you think might be interested in what we're doing, because word of mouth is really the hugest way anyone finds out about us and, you know, probably how you found out about us. That's right. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ripped Headlines, and our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. We love getting emails, so feel free to send us a note just to say hi. We will definitely say hi back. Yes, please let us know if we can read it on the show also, because we'd love to have your permission to do that. Also give your name and pronouns if you do want it read on the show. Yes, and if you forget any of this, any of our social media, we have a new website. It's rippedheadlinespod.com. You can find information about future things like newsletters, merchandise. We have a lot of fun things coming up. Speaking of, we are getting closer to launching a Patreon in the new future. So if there are things that you would love to see us create for you as part of a Patreon subscription, uh, please send us a message and let us know those things that you would love that would make it worthwhile for you to support our podcast. Yeah, it's been really fun playing with different ideas. And if you know any other podcasters out there, if you are another podcaster out there, YouTube show, host, anything, um, we love collaborating. Any collaboration we've done so far has been super fun. So message us or get the message out to them and tell, tell them about us. Thank you so much for listening to Rift from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines.